Well, today we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we have reached Matthew chapter 21, and I think it's an opportune moment for me just to give the periodic reminder that we provide the text of Scripture on these screens for you, and, uh, and that's great. I, I love making use of modern technology, but there is something just better about having something tactile in your hands. And so I do want to encourage you that this, to uh, consider a physical Bible, not just an e-Bible. Um, but whatever form that you, cons- that you ingest the Word of God, uh, just know that it's important, that the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's attended by the Holy Spirit himself. And it's so important that we want to make sure that everyone has a copy of it. So I'm sure most of you have your own Bibles, and that's great. But if you don't, please don't leave here without one. Uh, look at the back of the pew in front of you. You will see a Bible there. Just take it. If you need a Bible, take it. As, and consider it as a gift from us. Or if there's someone that you know who would read it if you gave it to them, by all means, take it. We, we want the word of God spread far and wide. And so by God's grace, we have the means to afford many Bibles. And so giving them out is a joy. So please, the word of God, take it. It is precious. And give it because in these words are life itself. Now today we will be reading Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray.
Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for recording the triumphal entry for us as a significant event in the life and ministry of our Savior. We ask that we would be cognizant of what you are calling us to here. Please be with us in this time of reflection. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, last week we finished chapter 20, and so we brought basically three years of ministry to a culmination, and it all comes down to this, the final week of Jesus' ministry. Uh, today we read, of course, the triumphal entry, and it is, of course, remembered on Palm Sunday, which, of course, this year is March 24th. Um, Palm Sunday begins so-called Holy Week that focuses on the final week of Jesus' life and ministry. And this week, Holy Week, is, is of profound importance so we, we see all of the Gospels, all four of them, emphasize this final week of Jesus' life. So again, we've had chapters 1 through 20, and they've covered essentially 33 years of his life, 30 years of his, of his ministry, and all, or all up to this final week, and then there's these final eight chapters that are going to focus on the final week. So there's a lot of condensing that Matthew does along the way to put all those years into all those chapters. And now he's going to take his time and, and focus and draw our attention to what Jesus does and what he says. In these final eight chapters, what we have is 29% of the book. 29% of the book is focused on the final week. And, and Mark is similar. There's 16 chapters in Mark. Six of them focus on the final week. So that's 38% of Mark's gospel. In Luke, there's 24 chapters with six of them focused on the final week. That's a quarter of the book. And John has the most. John's gospel is, is a completely different sort of, of gospel than the other three. He has 21 chapters in his gospel. Ten of them take place in the final week. That's almost 50% of the book, 48% exactly. But then within that section on the final week of Jesus' life, John spends six chapters on the final day, the day, or, or the day before on the upper room. So all of the gospel writers really slow down and zoom in on this final week because it's important. Up to this point in Matthew, what we've seen is Jesus introduced. At the beginning of the gospel, we hear the, the throwback to the lineage to Abraham, to, to the promise that through him and his seed, the nations would be blessed. And then we get to David and the promise of a king. And, and then Jesus is born and we are introduced to the concept of Jesus by the wise men showing up to Herod the Great saying, we come to worship 
the one who was born king of the Jews. And of course, that doesn't sit well with Herod. And he's introduced on the public stage, and in chapter 5, Jesus begins teaching on the law. He begins interpreting and ratcheting up the requirements of faithful covenant obedience. He performs miracles and wonders to showcase who he is. He tells parables to describe the kind of kingdom that he has. But all throughout, it gets to this point here. What he has come to do singularly. And so we see in these final chapters that there's four things to make note of that I want you to make note of, not just for today's verses, but to make note of, period. One is that this section of the Gospels is going to slow down and you're going to see day-by-day action. Whereas in previous chapters, events might take place with weeks or months in between them, here it slows down to the day-by-day take of what is transpiring. Second, in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, we're going to resume understanding why this is called a Jewish Gospel. You may be, remember way back when we started this series, we talked about how Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels and that there's lots of references to the Old Testament and to first century Jewish terminology and practices. And we saw that in the early chapters of Matthew, there's frequent citations, quotations, references, allusions to the Old Testament. But then they kind of he kind of slows down and it kind of plateaus throughout the majority of the gospel. But now in chapter 21, beginning in chapter 21, he's going to resume his very frequent referencing of the Old Testament. In fact, today we see in verse 5, he references Zechariah 9.9, which is a very famous messianic Prophecy by Zechariah about the salvation of Israel by their great king who comes on a colt. Zechariah is, of course, a minor prophet, one of the 12. I I don't know about you, but I'm not sure why you call something minor when it's referenced over 70 times in the New Testament. So understand that because Zechariah is mentioned as a considered to be a minor prophet, that does not mean that he's not important. He's referenced a lot in the New Testament. So we're going to see a lot more references and allusions, even in today's passage, to the Old Testament. Third, the third thing you're going to see as we move forward is that the temple is going to feature very prominently in his teachings as, as the geographic setting at which he's taking action, uh, the temple as a theme, it's going to be referenced in parable. The temple takes on a paramount important status. And if you read the rest of the, the previous chapters, all throughout his ministry, the temple is mentioned very infrequently, and it's just kind of there in the background. But now that he's in Judea, 
He's come south. He's, he's done his victory lap, so to speak. He's come down from Galilee. He's come down through the Decapolis, and he's now entered Judea, and he's made his way to Jerusalem. The temple is going to feature prominently, and that's going to be important. In first century Judaism, the four T's of Judaism were Torah, tradition, territory, and temple. The temple represented all of those other three. The temple was, for the first century Jew, the heart and the soul of their identity. We like to splice things out and and differentiate between cultural and ethnic and religious. It was all wrapped up into one big thing for them. And even though ever since the Babylonian exile, most Jews lived outside of the land of Israel, a situation that continues to this very day, at this time of year for Passover, all these pilgrims would come from around the world. Nonetheless, even though they didn't live there, Jerusalem was the heart and the soul of the Jewish identity with the temple being Right there. It's, it's, it's the thing, it's the beating heart. And Jesus has a lot to say about the temple. And then fourth, there's this thing that critical, that, not critical, that scholars referred to as the messianic secret. Throughout most of Jesus' ministry, he keeps it on the down low about him being the Messiah. Whenever a a demon identifies him, he tells it to be quiet. Whenever a person has previously identified Jesus as the son of David, uh, it's been alone and not in a public setting. So this thing that just happened right outside the, the gates where these two blind men are publicly calling him the son of David, That's the first time Jesus has allowed that to happen publicly. There's this thing that flows throughout the Gospels where Jesus, for most of his ministry, keeps it hush-hush who he is. And that goes away today in this passage. He publicly identifies himself as a king. Now, when we look at this passage, I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking, just having this idea, this this conception, that the triumphal entry just kind of happened. That Jesus is going along, and I I don't know, he gets to Jerusalem, and and, and I... uh, I guess the people were so excited, they kind of just put him on a donkey and and just kind of made it happen. And and Jesus is just kind of demurringly accepting their their accolades or whatever. And, And brothers and sisters, I hope that when we read it together, you see that that is not what happened at all. What we see here in this passage is Jesus is in full control of the situation. Jesus makes the triumphal entry happen. Of these 11 verses, six of them are Jesus making the preparations so it can happen. The triumphal entry is not an accident. 
It is the premeditated action of our Savior to identify as the king of the kingdom and of God's people. And that's how they understood it. But why is it called a triumphal entry? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why it's called a triumphal entry? I mean, he hadn't triumphed. It's called a triumphal entry because in the form it takes, Jesus borrows from what would have been understood culturally, the the Roman triumphus, the Roman triumphal entry march. And so made famous by the generals of Rome and their conquests, in a a Roman triumphal procession, the the victor would would come in on a great steed or on a great chariot. They would be laying down palm branches. And have you ever wondered why it was palm branches? Well, palm branches are ubiquitous in the Mediterranean world. And in that part of the world, they're about the strongest, biggest, coolest, luscious looking tree that is. And so throughout the Middle East and the whole Mediterranean basin, from antiquity, palm trees symbolize strength, stability, prosperity, and victory. Which is why everybody from Greek athletes who were victorious in the games would go home waving palm branches to the Carthaginians in North Africa would would mint uh, palm trees on their coins and it's in their surviving architecture. The Romans did it themselves. King Solomon etched palm trees into the walls and doors of the temple. So they didn't just pick up palm branches because you know, there was nothing else. It symbolized strength and victory. And that's what they did in Roman celebration. And then so what would happen in a Roman triumph? They would hail the victor, hail the conquering king, and he would come in to the city and he would make his way to the temple and he would offer sacrifices to the gods. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. But what's the first place Jesus goes to when he gets into Jerusalem? The temple. So in in form, it follows that model. That is why the church, ever since the earliest days, have referred to this as the triumphal entry because it borrows the form from a Roman triumph procession. Okay? That's why it's called that. Now, Jesus here identifies as a king. He, He could have just kept on foot. Haven't you, have you ever wondered, Jesus has just made, I mean, he's walked everywhere, everywhere. For his whole life, he's walked everywhere. And he's just walked 90 some miles up and down ravines, hills, gorges. Why all of a sudden does he need a break? All of a sudden, I'm I'm a mile out from the gates. I need to get on a donkey. And we're told why. It isn't that he was tired. His, his, his overzealous disciples didn't make it happen. He had made arrangements to make it happen. Scholars are torn, but the, the preponderance, and myself included, believe that what we see demonstrated on multiple occasions in this final week of Jesus' life is that he had made prior arrangements. He, he, was, he was shrewd, he was stealthy, he knew the Pharisees were looking to kill him, 
So he, he had made a few uh, of prior arrangements. And so the Lord has need for this is the code word to, to let it go. And, but he had made arrangements and we're told specifically this was to fulfill the words of the prophet. So Jesus is intentionally wanting to present the prophet's words as having come true. He's a king, and he's coming to bring salvation. And the, the people understand this. The people understand what's taking place here, that Jesus has just been called the son of David by these two blind guys. He didn't turn them away. He, he, he healed them of their blindness, and now he's riding into town, and they are just exuberant in their ex exaltations. So they lay their shirts on the, their cloaks on the ground. They lay branches on the ground, an action that, that they took in previous places and in times so that a king wouldn't have to get their feet dirty on the ground. And they are saying, Hosanna, which started out as a plea to God to save, but then turns kind of into a statement uh, it's kind of a, an exultant, hooray for salvation. It's, it's kind of like our God bless America. It, it started out as a request, God bless America. But then it kind of just turned into a statement or an exclamation, which kind of turned into what Hosanna was for them, kind of a, a nationalistic rallying point of cry. the son of David. And of course, there's not a Jew alive who would have misunderstood what that meant. The Messiah, the king, has returned. Wow. All right. The disciples, man, this must have been the moment they were waiting for. I mean, Jesus had just publicly received the cries from two blind men, and now he has made arrangements to ride in on a, on a donkey. Uh, he, he's coming in, and the people are praising. The disciples must have been like, oh, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. It's about to go down. It's about to get real in here. Oh, boy. And we have a front row tickets to the whole thing. Yes. Everybody there understood Jesus to be a king. But yet, they were all of them wrong. Not that he was a king. And they're absolutely, they were on different wavelengths in terms of what kind of king he was. And, and that leads to why this passage is preached just about every year in Christian churches. We are confronted with this great dichotomy that exists in, oftentimes between Jesus as he is and how Jesus offers himself 
and how Jesus presents himself with Jesus and how we want him to be. Which king are you looking for? What kind of Messiah are you seeking? What kind of son of David do you find in the person of Jesus? What kind? Everyone here got it wrong. Even after the resurrection, before Pentecost, the disciples were still getting it wrong. They asked Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now? now? Okay, you died, but now you're back alive. You're going to... Even then they still didn't understand. They lived under the boot of Rome. They looked around and they saw all of the rank immorality they saw the, 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 the people who were to the left of them, to the right of them. They saw people who they thought were colluders with the foreign power, these, these crooked, corrupt merchants. They, they saw nothing but the problems of life. And they so desperately wanted a savior that was going to take away all of that. That's what they wanted. Making Israel great again. But they didn't understand that the Romans and the, the crooked tax collectors who, who added a little bit to the top to line their own pockets, the, the vendors, the, the religious establishment, their, the, the immoral neighbors, the, all that stuff that, that bothered them, that wasn't the real problem. That wasn't the real oppressor. The real oppressor was their sinful hearts. And it's the same to this day. Guys, I don't know about you, but I, I you know, I look at like what's going on all around the world and I, I look what's going on here in Texas at the border and, you know, there's a part of me that wants to say, yeehaw, and there's another part of me that's like, what? But I'll tell you what, whatever problem you might think illegal immigration poses in a federal government that's not securing our, whatever, whatever you might think that is, it's a problem. But the thing that I need deliverance from is my own wretched heart. But I don't perceive my heart to be a problem, naturally. Isn't it weird how people are like that? You, you, counselors who counsel addicts of all kinds will all line up and tell you the single hardest thing about getting treatment to a drunkard or a drug addict or whatever is just getting them to acknowledge they have a problem. Because you might see my sins, you might see my shortcomings, and, and, and all of you together might be able to paint a nice composite picture of all my warts and blemishes, but I myself... I'm pretty satisfied with me and you with you. And even the bad things I do, I'm, I, I rationalize them or, or, or whatever. I'm comfortable with my sin. So I don't feel the oppression of it. But that's the real oppressor. 
And that's why Jesus came to put an end to sin. Of course, they were seeking a political savior, a cultural savior, a social savior. And I don't think most of us are looking for Jesus to come down and, and I don't know, push out all the, the political people we don't like. I'm not, I don't think we're thinking that. But I have seen this huge thing in popular Christianity where, where Jesus and his kingdom are, are, are psychologized. So that Jesus is primarily, I, I don't want to say pretend, that's, that's metaphorical or I don't know, but, but, but there's this trend where Jesus is there primarily to take away your sense of guilt. That, that you might, I don't know, just live up to your potential. That you might live just in, an, you know, enjoying life better, taking better selfies for Instagram or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, TikTok. There we go. Is, is Jesus, is that the kind of savior you're looking for? That you're, you're basically fine and, and you just need, I don't know, maybe, maybe a little lipstick or make it just a little bit of doctrine but nothing fundamental is that the kind of savior you want if so you missed the boat because Jesus comes to inaugurate a kingdom of people who were former traitors rebels enemies and have been converted and changed and adopted. All of us, our worst problem is that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins and that we love the darkness. That's what we need deliverance from first and foremost. But understand this. Jesus, although he's going to go on and he's going to explain and, and emphasize that his kingdom is not of this world, that means it operates on a different set of priorities and principles. But his kingdom is indeed in this world. And Jesus is indeed a king. Understand that when we make the confession that Jesus is king of kings, we're saying that whatever level of human authority there may exist, whatever, whether it's the governor or the president or, 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 a, or an earthly king or an emperor. Whatever. Jesus is higher still. And when we face with a king, when, you, when, a, when a person is subject to a king, the king expects loyalty, fidelity, obedience, and I think that's a missing part of American Christianity. Is we, we, we think that Jesus just wants to be believed in, and, and by believed in, we simply mean we, we'll agree that he exists. And he, maybe he wants my positive emotions. He wants my affection. But understand that Jesus is a king. And we're told... 
that to him every knee will bow. And that means mine. And that means yours. So Jesus is to be believed. He's to be loved. He's to be obeyed. And we are to show loyalty to him. And loyalty is shown precisely when it's inconvenient. Precisely when there's the demands of an alternative king. We are to showcase the values of the kingdom of heaven here and now because he is our king. He's not a king in accordance with the world. He's a king by virtue of enthronement by the father. Understand, finally, that at the triumphal entry here, we see Jesus declaring himself to be the messianic king. And he's to be obeyed. He's to be believed. He's to be trusted. But he comes humbly. He comes gently. He comes meekly. Because he was letting us know that in this moment, in this moment, he welcomes. Right now, we have a king who comes meekly. For today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can say, you know what? The kingdom that you represent, Jesus, I want it. I will repent from my former ways. I trust in you to be and do all that you have said. I am yours. And we learn from Colossians that he, we get removed from the kingdom of darkness and, and transported to the kingdom of his glorious son in, in that moment. But understand this. This picture you see here in Matthew 21 of of exultant crowds and a mild savior on the, on the back of a colt. That is not the way it will be forever. Soon and very soon the picture changes dramatically. And we are shown this for this preview in Revelation 19 verses 11 to 16. Hear these words and contrast them with the picture that was just painted in Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the, in the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
That's a dramatically different picture than Matthew 21, isn't it? And it's one and the same person. The difference is his mission at the time. He was on a mission to save. And today is the day of salvation. Turn to him. For the day comes when the opportunity to repent is removed. And if you have persisted in your unrepentance, in your disbelief, and in your rebellion, you will meet the rider of the white horse, followed by an army. Because in that day, our God comes to vindicate and to restore all things to make them new. So which Jesus, which king do you receive? Do you look to Jesus and celebrate Jesus on your terms for what, whatever benefits you perceive he might offer you? Or do you hear the word of God and receive Jesus on the terms he is offering to you? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Jesus, for declaring yourself as king and for offering us mercy. Forbid, Lord, that we should attempt to receive you on our terms, trying to scratch whatever perceived need we feel we have, but rather let us, by your Holy Spirit, turn to you in repentance and faith, receiving you as you present yourself. Thank you for saving us. It's in your name we pray, O oh Lord. Amen.